Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Davida Breyer, author of the new novel, Sinkhole. In addition to writing the novel, Davida works at the Johns Hopkins University Press, where she is co-director, sales and marketing for the books division, and director of Hopkins Fulfillment Services. Davida, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here today. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, Sinkhole, how would you describe the novel? Um, I would describe Sinkhole as a suspenseful, darkly comic coming-of-age tale uh, set in 1980s Central Florida. And uh, I think that uh, what I'm hearing is that different people were taking different things from the novel. So, you know, each of those pieces may mean a little bit more to to the reader. Sure. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Sinkhole? It really came down to, you know, thinking about how certain personalities are are so toxic, so damaging, how they can hurt, you know, adults. And and one day I just thought, wow, I wonder what those people were like as kids. Like kids can be kind of selfish and narcissistic and how can you tell when that's normal and when that's kind of pathological? And that's what the the kernel started as, is, is wondering, you know, when do you begin to recognize bad people for, for what they are and how, especially if you're also a kid? And uh, that, that was, the, that was the, the germ and everything kind of flowed from there. Well, what was your writing journey that led you to writing fiction and now sinkhole? So I've, I've always worked with books. I mean, back from when I was a teenager, my mother was an independent bookseller. You know, books got me through, you know, I was one of those kids that always had a book on them. It was, you know, I was one of those kids who, when they were old enough to leave the house and go places on their bike by themselves and, you know, begin to explore the world, I went to the library. <laughs> so for, for me, books were always central but fiction always seemed so hard. You had to, you know, it was something I was scared of. But um, I, I ended up working for a publisher. I I wrote, but it was all nonfiction. And, you know, I did some work in small press. And again, very little fiction because it scared me. I ended up working for um, book distributors and, you know, ultimately ended up at Johns Hopkins. And I finally reached an age where being afraid to write bad fiction was less, you know, less daunting than being afraid that I never would. Mm -hmm. And so I gave it a shot. And uh, in 2017, I set a goal to try and see if I could write a novel in a year. And I didn't quite make the year, but, you know, I had a rough draft after about 15, 16 months. And what was that experience like for you after so many years of, um, as you mentioned, of um, not only reading and loving books, but also working in um, book publishing? How was that experience to finally sit down, you know, outside of your day job in the industry and um, work on your own fiction? Because of of my work experiences, you know, I was constantly in this, you know, kind of back and forth between being a little jaded and knowing how few copies were likely to sell and being, <laughs> you know, naive and hopeful as an author that, well, I don't know, maybe, 
maybe this can work. And I think that having that grounding did help me understand where I was going and what, you know, to stay focused and know that it, it couldn't just be all over the place. I had to do research. I had to make sure I was, you know, doing things in such a way that would make it readable and make people want to publish it and try and avoid some of the, some of maybe some of the pitfalls I had seen other uh, with other books or other publishers. Sure. And, and how do you think working in book publishing, how did that impact as you were working on the novel? Um, because of, of where and how I work in book, book publishing, you know, I had to think early on about things that most authors don't like, well, what would the bicep code be? Where would this be shelved? <laughs> you know, what would the metadata look like? You know, who, who is going to sell this? Where would this be sold? And so I was thinking much further along from, from early on in the process, simply because I, that's what I do day in and day out. Sure. Well, why did you decide to set the book in the 1980s? What, what, what was the appeal there for you? Um, one of the reasons is because I, I felt like that was, I've been seeing a lot of nostalgia for that period. And I feel like we, what we see now as the glossed over what the eighties were, aren't necessarily representative of the actual time period. There were, there were things that were quite hard, particularly for teenagers at that time. Um, the isolation and so one of the themes and one of the issues in the book is indeed isolation and communication. And it, it becomes that much more focused when you realize that there's no internet, that to make a phone call, any type of long distance call can be quite expensive, that your view of the world is limited to what kind of channels you can receive on, on a TV antenna. And um, one of the other very basic reasons is that, you know, once I had my idea, I realized that social media or a cell phone would destroy my plot in about 30 seconds. <laughs> there would be no story. And, you know, by, by setting it at that time and place, I take away, you know, some of the things that the immediacy, the, the connection um, that, that we take for granted. Sure, sure. Um, and I'm curious when you were working on sinkhole, uh, how did you, um, decide to kind of write about sexuality and gender identity? And, and um, with regard to Michelle, who is asexual and she is, she is the main character. Mm -hmm. That was how she just kind of started developing and appearing and. You know, I have one of my closest friends identifies as ace and I talked to her. I was thinking about it. And, you know, I realized that that representation in literature is, is kind of sparse. And, and I was also thinking about the fact that so often in novels, romantic relationships are seen as a pinnacle. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how friendship, just genuine platonic friendship can be that pinnacle, can be so important to to characters and and maybe move away from from some standard narratives about romantic relationships being central um morrison 
is is gay. He was he's one of the other main characters, and you know I'm I'm bisexual, and I just was again thinking about talking about how characters' lives are are influenced, particularly in the '80s, by some of these you know core components of their personalities, but that how that influences them day to day more than necessarily who they're you know. It's not about who they're sleeping with. It's really about how they're living their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, as you as you described earlier of this process of setting your yourself this challenge and this goal of writing a novel in a year, um, what ended up being your writing process when you were working on Sinkhole? When you when you sat down to write it, did you have the entire book um, in your mind or plotted, or did you kind of just jump into the story and the narrative to, to see where it led you? Um, I am not a pantser. I am a plotter, mm-hmm. but I didn't necessarily have it all figured out. Um, I live and die by spreadsheets. <laughs> and that really, those were the, my fundamental building blocks. Um, early on, I was making notes. I was kind of creating character sketches. I was trying to figure out who the who the characters were and how they might fit in with the action. And I would create, I created spreadsheets with their birthdays and their major life events and what they were each doing in those years. Um, I created a spreadsheet that showed what their school schedules were so I could get inside what does their day? What do their daily lives feel like? What classes are they moving through during the day? How might they be interacting during the day? Um, and ultimately, I, I ended up with a spreadsheet that helped me plot the two different timelines, what's going on, and those major plot points. And then I use that as as my bible to you know write through. And and I found that because I had that spreadsheet, if I really didn't know how to how to work a scene. I could jump ahead a little bit and then try to backfill. Um, one of the things that that helped me most, because again, I was I was figuring my own process out, was that you know I was I was nine months in. It was around September, and I hadn't gotten as far as I had hoped. And I created a daily writing challenge of just five hundred words, and again, a spreadsheet. Um, so each time I you know I sat down and I I wrote or deleted, you know I'd I'd keep track of the word count. And it it enabled me to see the building and got me through to, you know, you know about maybe 60, 70 percent of the novel written by December. And um, at that point, I, I, I needed to take a research trip because I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't I was getting it right enough that I could finish through to the end. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. 
For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I think that the the best thing that I learned that I did for myself um, was getting past the fear and giving myself the grace to be bad at something, to, to allow myself, you know, drafts that maybe didn't work and to make them better. But being afraid, too afraid to start or afraid that it was going to be bad had held me back. And by moving past that and by being open, it really did help me move forward and complete a novel that I'm, that I'm proud of. That's great. Are you working on another novel now? I have notes. I, I wanted to see this one through to the end. The, you know, the pub date is next week. And um, once, once I get past the pub date and the dust settles, I'm, I'm probably going to go ahead and start cleaning those notes up and maybe make a few spreadsheets. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I just read uh, Jonathan Evanson's new one, Small World. I enjoyed that one. Um, who else am I reading? Um, I'm reading there's a new James Lee Burke coming out in, in a, I think, a week or two. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, nonfiction, I, I did enjoy Elvira's autobiography. I just read that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also just starting a, um, CJ Tudor novel, The Burning Girls. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel Sinkhole? Um, the best place is my website and that's davidabriar.com. Uh, there will be more vowels than you're expecting. They, they tend to get dropped off quite a bit. <laughs> so it's, it's D-A-V-I-D-A. B-R-E-I-E-R dot com. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Davida Breyer, author of the new novel, Sinkhole. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Davida, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much. Absolutely. My name is Michelle A. Miller. The A is for Anne, but I've never been told why. Maybe they thought the M's needed something in the middle, like the pivot in a seesaw, like, it would balance me. My name should be an immutable part of who I am. But it isn't. At work, I call myself Anne. Anne Miller, the actress, was born Johnny Lucille Collier. When people are called something else, it is usually to hide from who they were. I work in the medical records department at a hospital in suburban Atlanta. I'm single. I live by myself. No children and no family history of cancer. I am not pregnant or on any medications. My pain level is between 1 and 2, physically speaking. 
My emergency contact is a TV character with a fake phone number. These are the kinds of personal history questions I stare at all day long. Furthermore, I don't have a cat, and I drive an anonymous-looking tan 1992 Ford Escort. These are reasonably truthful, utterly meaningless facts. As I read and file intake forms, I always wonder about the people. What do all the boxes of information represent? Is home an address or a place? Did anyone care for the person after the car accident? What if everything on the forms is a lie? When work is quiet, sometimes I fill out the forms for myself, creating new lives each time. Each one is as true as my employment application. I don't like who I am, so I hide and pretend in order to get through the day. I've always wondered if my father took part of me with him when he died, or if I would always have been like this. When I was a child, I used to tell people my father was killed by a giant snake. Two lies and a truth. He did die because of a snake, but it wasn't very big, and it didn't kill him. A baby corn snake had crawled inside his car and decided to explore while he was driving. He freaked out and lost control of the car. A melaleuca tree killed my father. The giant snake made his death sound heroic instead of meaningless. I would pretend that the snake had never crawled into his car or that I'd stepped on its egg and it was never born. I would imagine a perfect life with dad radiating at its center. At eight, I learned that little, harmless things could destroy everything without sense or reason. The Florida Highway Patrol found my father in the waning moments of his life, clutching the tiny snake, screaming that it had killed him. They could have avoided putting that detail in the report, spared us knowing, but they didn't. It was one of those stories that ended up as yet one more Florida punchline, a story to be passed around so people can laugh at death instead of fear it. My mother was unhappy with the obituary the Sebring Herald published based on the police report. It sounded like every other obit the paper ran, except for the snake. It read more like the snake's obituary. Walker Francis Miller died on Wednesday, September 22, 1976, in a freak car accident along State Route 70, east of Okeechobee. Mr. Miller had been distracted by a juvenile corn snake, a common non-venomous reptile native to central Florida, causing him to run off the road. He is survived by his wife of 10 years, Penelope Penny Dean Miller, his stepson, Michael John Dean, 12, and daughter, Michelle Ann Miller, 8. He was 41 years old. Details like name, age, occupation, and surviving relatives were fill-in-the-blanks on death's mad lips. People sounded like they had always been corpses. Mom showed up at the small newspaper office and overwhelmed the editor. She demanded that they allow her to write a proper obituary for Dad. Her grief was still fierce and alive, and it showed in her work. Once he read what she'd written, he agreed to publish it. It may have been a slow news day. Mom wrote about Dad as he had lived, about his favorite beer and his irrational hatred of avocados. 
She talked about him as a father and a husband. She described him as a man who rooted for the castaways to get off the island, knowing full well the show would be over if they did. Mom included a photo of him from when he had long, curly hair and a mustache. He was clean-shaven and balding when he died. Few people remembered he had ever had that much hair. It was my hair. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.